Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaleta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of Leuven in Belgium. Today, I give you access to the headquarters of this podcast, which is in Belgium. And uh, I'm uh, very glad to share this with you today. It's the first time that I go uh, live on, uh, on my new Twitch channel and at the same time recording this podcast for the uh, usual followers of datasensetome.com. So I thank you both the audiences. Uh, I thank you very much for following the podcast. And um, I'm uh, really glad to have you here on the show. And of course, I will, uh, I will renew the invitation to join the Discord channel. Uh, I will report the, uh, the link in the show notes of this episode. Uh, it's a place where uh, if you want, you can join me and for a chat and speak about uh, previous episodes or why not propose new ones. It's always good to uh, have some uh, c- constructive criticism about previous podcasts, but also uh, having fresh idea about what are the things that you would like to, uh, you know, me to speak about in the in the immediate future. In fact, um, today I want to. Um, tackle, well, in fact, discuss one particular um, problem, which is machine learning in production. And the, the reason I want to do that is because uh, it, it is something that a lot of people have been writing about or, or speaking about um, because it's very fragmented, I found. It's a very fragmented topic with a lot of different opinions. Uh, sometimes even uh, one, you know, not not really uh, not really similar to each other so it's always difficult to find uh, the right voice uh, for the right use case and so i hope today i'm going to do a decent job uh, clarifying as much as i can the problem of machine learning in production giving some of my uh, you know the best practices that i've been observing in my career so far and also sharing with you some experiences that uh, uh, that i faced in uh, in the years now there are several actors when it comes to machine learning in production and uh, of course we know the the figure of the data scientist the role that the data scientist plays in a, um, of course in a machine learning uh, project um, but also uh, you know there are different views uh, whenever the project is complex enough for um, you know justifying the existence of a data scientist but also a data engineer and of course you know higher uh, other people with much less technical skills for example the so-called the business or the stakeholders, uh, how they call them in uh, in large organizations. So you know, also or project managers, for example, who also wants to play uh, a role in the project because you know uh, they are um, observing these agile methodologies and all the things that we have been discussing in previous episodes. Of course, so feel free to download and listen to these things again. Um, and then, of course, there is the, the business who wants to, uh, for example, well, they pretend explanations about how the project is going, what are some technical decisions, why we t- took some technical decisions the way we did, um, why we interpreted the, the, the natural phenomenon or the, the phenomenon in general that we are observing in that particular way. Um, and so the business also 
I've seen more more often than than uh, than all more of, more often than not they want to change something that is quite crucial uh, and they want to do that in uh, a period or in a moment that is not really appropriate to change uh, so uh, so such critical um, uh, components or decisions uh, in a later stage in the later stage of the project. Um, so these are usually the actors that. Um, you know, as a team member, whoever you are, uh, you have to deal with. Um, and of course, this brings us to a relatively complex ecosystem that is uh, that needs to be managed in the proper way. So I want to, you know, expand on uh, each uh, f- aspect of uh, machine learning in production, starting from the very beginning, which is, of course, data. Now, when you are dealing with a machine learning model, uh, not only a model per se, but a, an entire workflow that uh, you know generates revenue somehow or indirectly, uh, the very first thing that you know when everything where everything starts is in fact data. No data, no party. And so uh, you know the very first thing that you want to do. Uh, is monitoring incoming data when whenever you have launched your machine learning model in production the very first thing that you want to observe is the data that is flowing in right Uh, now you might be observing or monitoring incoming data um, in the dress or with the hat of of the engineer and so you might be looking at things like schema like uh, data formats um, sometimes data volumes actually more than sometimes data volumes um, but as you uh, you know wear the hat of the data scientist uh, the things that you are monitor- monitoring about incoming data might be completely different and so starting from the trivial ones like uh, number of rows number of columns um, uh, but also, uh, you know, if some categorical features are preserved in your production data, uh, and so, for example, if you had a category called age, uh, and the categories in that column were, uh, I don't know, a teenager, um, uh, how do you say, teenager, uh, let's say, uh, middle and old, right? Um, now, if you have baby in production, uh, well, that's a category that you didn't consider in, in during training, and so you might you might want to observe these things because if the categories start changing, uh, they can break things, right? So, as you you know, what I'm trying to say is that when when you are the data scientist, you look at data with a different mind uh, and from a different aspect. Um, another thing that you know, if you are a data scientist, you definitely want to do is checking that all the features are there, right? And uh, this might be, you know, if if a feature is a column, that easy easy to track. Um, but most of the time, there is not a one-to-one relationship between uh, features for training your model and number of columns. Some features are virtu- are virtual; they do not exist in the data. They are calculated from other columns or from other calculations. And so, you want to make sure that in productions, the in production environments, these features uh, are still there. But the number one thing that you want to do when you are a data scientist is identifying the invariance. All right. Uh, I think we have discussed this months ago in another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. And uh, um, defining the invariance is something that only who understands what the data is about can do. 
Now, every data has some sort of invariance, whatever they are. They can be from a statistical perspective, they can be um, uh, metrics that should never change uh, no matter what time or what day of the week you're observing your incoming data. There is a geometry in the data. Otherwise, you know, machine learning would not exist in the first place. The, the, the nice thing of machine learning is that it tries to detect these patterns. So there is a pattern. There must be a pattern. And, and now what you want to do as a data scientist, once you launch your model in production, is define your invariants, the things that are not supposed to change. And, and, and once you have defined these invariants, you can observe them. You cannot observe things that keep changing. That's much more challenging, of course. What you can observe, what you can measure, it's something that it's not supposed to change. And so you can, tra you can track this in time. For example, from a statistical perspective, um, what you might consider an invariant is the statistical distribution of some um, aspects of your data. I'm not saying some columns or some rows. You have to define what that shape is. But in fact, there are some statistical properties that are not supposed to change even in production, especially in production. Uh, the main reason why uh, what they call artificial intelligence work is because data do not change. And so regardless of the hype that you might be uh, reading about or listening about uh, is, is like, you know, this AI that is going to generalize and can, uh, can, can do everything and can solve climate change and can do a lot of other things that we are not supposed, we are not supposed to, to teach this AI. Well, that's, first of all, bullshit. Second, it's not true because AI, as we know it today, works because data do not change statistically. If you observe a, a training data, you train your model on, and then you launch your model, and all of a sudden the statistical properties of your new data, of the unseen data change, well, I'm telling, I'm telling you that model is not gonna perform as good. And that is a problem, you know, that, that, there is a mathematical explanation of why that's the case. I'm not gonna go into that now, but that's exactly what happens, right? the model is not going to work. So the model works as long as the statistical distribution or certain statistical distributions are preserved under certain constraint. So that's the invariant. <clears throat> that's something that you want to observe. That's something that you can measure and you better do. Cross correlations is something that, for example, should be preserved between your training data and your validation data, and of course your production data. So this is something that is relatively easy and quick to, um, to calculate uh, when it comes to cross correlations, for example. It's very easy to compute, and it already gives you a very good heuristic about uh, you know, the shape of, or the geometry of your data. If something is fishy there, uh, it, there is a high chance that uh, that is going to stay fishy also in your model. And so that, you know, uh, problem will be eff effectively propagate, propagated towards your model or will start, that will start performing less. Um, when data change, features can change too, right? So check if you can simplify the model as new data gets in. It happens many, many times that when new data get, comes in your uh, production pipeline, uh, your data set becomes richer. Uh, sometimes it becomes cleaner because there were some APIs that were fixed along the line 
and um, and so you're not getting for example missing values anymore or you are getting less missing values because the um, uh, some logical components somewhere in the pipeline have been improved or because some iot devices are not failing anymore because they were failing in the period that you were training your model and now they're not they're no longer failing so you know the quality of the data is improving now this means that probably probably the quality of your predictions will improve and probably the model that you are that you have trained in the first place might be simplified because you know when you were dealing with dirty data you were also considering a fancier or a more sophisticated model to handle this, uh, uh, you know, dirtiness in the data that no longer exists, which means that now your model can be simplified. And a simple model is a model that can go to production, can behave better from a statistical perspective, but can also be uh, performed on, uh, for example, lighter infrastructure. And this means that you can, um, for instance, save some costs on the, on the infrastructure, right? Maybe you no longer need eight GPUs because there is something that you don't longer need a neural network, for example. And so just cut the cost of that GPU running there. And this is possible because data has improved. Now, the one thing that I've rarely seen happening in um, uh, commercial environments, at least the one that I've been involved um, in my career, is using a validation data set that you promise never to train on. <laughs> That's something that uh, I've seen only happening in front of Jupyter notebooks when I was dealing with the pure uh, data scientists. But in production, these validation data sets, you know, people seem to forget that there is a validation data set they need to uh, consider whenever you um, make a change on the model before launching it to production. Um, and this validation data set is, of course, that chunk of data you never train the model on, otherwise you're cheating, because, of course, the model is going to perform if you trained on it. Um, so you never train on this data, but it's something, it's a validation data set that needs to, you, you need to keep updated as new data comes in. And this is very important because fresh data, you know, depending on the business, of course, but, you know, depending, depends also on the frequency that fresh data gets in. So if you're dealing with, for example, financial transactions, uh, and you are a financial transaction aggregator that aggregates from multiple credit unions, uh, and so, of course, you have fresh data on on, on a minute basis, probably. <laughs> uh, but you update this, you know, your local data sets like once per day, right? Now, this means that your frequency is daily. And this means that your validation data set should be built on a daily basis and should be updated on a daily basis because the model is performing on fresh data daily, right? That's the frequency, that's the time unit that you're considering. And as you consider it for your model and for the training data, as well as for the production data, well, you also have to consider it for your validation data. Validation data should be part of your production pipeline, 100%. Now, I've seen also people dealing with bias in production. Uh, some people consider this a best practice. I personally do not, um, because uh, bias in uh, live systems is, um, well, I think it's too late. Uh, I think it's too late to check for bias here. Uh, think about bias during model building or model designing, not when the model has been launched. And why I'm saying that is because bias can come from different directions. It can come from data, it can come from the model, 
And so if the model is not ready to handle bias, uh, it will never do in production. So just rebuild the model, redesign a model that is robust to bias. Uh, so that's why I say, when you think about bias, that's a bit more sophisticated than you know data cleaning. Bias is subtle. And so uh, machine learning models have to take into account bias since day zero, <laughs> not in production. It's my personal opinion. I've seen it working in uh, in in uh, in the several projects I've been uh, I've been leading, and really considering bias in production is a waste of time. Um, there is another thing that I've seen uh, not very often, I have to be honest here, but I've seen happening: uh, people considering or well measuring what I call higher level metrics uh, on the models. For example, how much money am I making because I improved this model? So uh, some folks come with a better uh, neural network or something that predicts uh, with higher accuracy, a couple of percentage points, which is huge for a, for a recommender system, for example. Well, they try to um, correlate the the revenue that that model is making is generating from with the accuracy right and so they they assume that okay i have a a, a better model it performs better which means that it's making me more money well don't do that because you know revenue streams depend on many other factors and i'm telling you many times it's not really about the model performance it's not related at all there are many other factors that um, are, for example, impacting your rev the revenue stream of your organization. And so if you connect these two things, many times you're wrong. Now, let's move to um, some best practices that I've, um, um, I, I want to stress on because I'm also, you know, before being a data scientist, I was a developer. Um, and so I don't want to digress here, but my background is like, as you know, I have the background of a programmer, right? And so I tend to apply um, my skills and to look at business projects with the, the, the eye of the developer. Um, the eye of the developer is the, um, the eye of the person who wants efficient tasks to be in place, right? Um, so the very first thing that you need to define when you are dealing with a team, especially heterogeneous teams of, as I said, <clears throat> sorry, data scientists, data engineers, project managers, stakeholders, the business, etc. Well, the people who are actively involved in building a machine learning pipeline, uh, well, these people need to define coding standards. Uh, and that's extremely important, not just because you are a developer, but because you want the, the project to be solid and solidity means uh, that you can expand your team anytime uh, or you can involve other people uh, not from day zero um, and you want to do that with the same standards because you know you want people to read the same code in the same way so define coding standard uh, Coding code reviews, for example, there are strategies to define code reviews. Uh, testing strategies. I mean, we've been discussing about testing in, uh, uh, we have dedicated like three episodes uh, very recently on data science at home. And we have been speaking about testing strategies from another perspective, but these are extremely important components of, uh, of any project when it comes to IT in general, not just machine learning or data science. 
And the very last thing, but definitely not the least, is documentation. I want to stress on this, like, really be aware of the guy or the girl who's not keen to write solid documentation. Documentation is part of the project. It's something that is extremely important, sometimes even more than the code. I've seen projects succeeding because they had the documentation first before the code. <laughs> I mean, the API was so well defined that developing, implementing that API, once it was documented, it was like a piece of cake, really. And, you know, this comes with, uh, it's part of the software engineering principles uh, that I'm mentioning here, but really <clears throat> enforce this in your team. If there is an engineer or a programmer or a developer who's not keen at writing documentation, even after, especially after they have implement, implemented their piece of code, I'm not saying screw them, but you know what I mean. <laughs> All right. <coughs> so, um, Another thing to do when you are in heterogeneous teams is defining your templates. Now, if you are using a Docker uh, system uh, and you have Docker files here and there, define the, this as a template, right? If you have an ML flow server running somewhere, define the configurations and the, as a template. If you are using Airflow for scheduling jobs, these are amazing tools, by the way, template them. Template them because these are these are the tools that you are using in your organization I mean, and for not just for this project, you're using them across projects, right? And this means that these are the tools that you need to template. As a writer templates things about, you know, scripts, for example, or chapters for a book, that's exactly the same. Why not templating these things, these configurations? I've never seen, I've rarely seen these things happening in uh, in teams. That's why I'm saying it now. Templates the configurations of the tools that you use. It's very, very important. Now, I've seen many engineers frustrated from a f the fragmented world they have to deal with. And, and I'm with them. Like, if you look at the ecosystem, uh, how many frameworks we have for, like, data cleaning, data pre-processing, machine learning flows, uh, pipelines, reproducibility, yada, yada, yada. We have so many tools now. Uh, databases. I mean, oh my God, databases. Anyway, we have so many tools that, of course, the data engineer you are dealing with can be frustrated by the, the many tools he has to deal with or he, he can possibly be dealing with in the immediate future for, for the next project or for this one. So what I'm trying to say is make engineers' life easier, right? And how can you do that as a scientist? Well, log the stuff that your model is producing. Starting from the metrics, hyperparameters, the latencies, the thresholds that you use internally and that are subject to change, these are all things that need to be logged. Uh, for example, if you have a decision tree, the decision tree is one of the simplest things to explain because you know it's a kind of a rule-based machine learning model. The machine learning part is just learning which feature to consider and which and where to take the split. So where to consider if this is less than that, do this. If this other thing is greater than that, do this other thing. You know, that, that's a decision tree in a nutshell. Now, when you are in front of a decision tree, at the very end of the decision tree, so-called leaf, the leaf node, you have to take the goddamn decision. And that, you need a threshold. You have to define a threshold on that. Do you mind logging that threshold? 
because that threshold can change. So this is, you know, I'm oversimplifying here, but it's just to, you know, to explain what I mean um, and to make it easier for, you know, representing these things without a whiteboard or without writing anything. Um, define your thresholds. If there is a threshold, log it as well as the metrics, as you will log the hyperparameters, uh, because they might change. And I tell you, they change. They do change. Um, do not reinvent the wheel because you think you're smarter than others. This is something that was related to uh, use tools that do exist, right? You, If you're not in a research and development or in academia, uh, you're here to run a business and you want that machine learning workflow to work as smooth as possible and uh, and crash as less as possible, right? If that machine learning workflow is not working, you're losing money or you are not making money, which is like losing money. So this is your goal, right? You're not here to experiment with tools, to reinvent the wheel all the time. And so saying that you, are, that you have a tool that is better than MLflow or Airflow, because I'm telling you, you do not. I'm telling you, you do not. 90% of the time, if not more, the people who are proposing to experiment with new stuff they have invented in their 10% uh, time or in the weekends is bullshit. Airflow, MLflow, and many other tools out there are tools that have been developed by entire teams who have been dedicating part of their career in building these tools. And they, they are solid, they work, so just use them. I know that creating stuff from scratch is fun, but when it comes to production, you have to remove that fun part because fun means risky. Uh, other tools that have not been um, seen, uh, seeing a lot in production or leading to production environments is tools for uh, removing variability and increasing reproducibility. Now, when it comes to reproducibility, there is one name, in my opinion, which is DVC. Uh, data version control. I've been personally using this quite extensively in my career. It's a super nice tool. It's a bit tricky to use at the beginning. You have to get familiar with that. But I mean, that's true for any other tool out there. But it's extremely powerful. I'm telling you, DVC is the way to go when it comes to reproducible pipelines, uh, especially in production environments, especially in production environments, because Every time you're launching a model and you need to validate that model, well, I'm telling you, you want to make things as reproducible as possible because if you are migrating to another cloud or to another infrastructure because it's cheaper or because it's faster, well, what you want to do is migrating the, ma the machine learning workflow as is and to make it as you know 100% reproducible. And DVC helps you doing that. Uh, when you want to remove variability, there are many other tools out there uh, probably you guys are familiar with Docker, uh, but also virtual machines are another way to go. Conda environments, virtual amps are also another way to go. Choose the one that you prefer. I mean, I'm not here to say uh, Conda is better than Docker, is better than virtual amp, whatever. Tool what you're familiar with, but uh, sorry, <laughs> use what you're familiar with, use the tool that you're familiar with, but use it, right? Uh, don't leave, you know, tracking reproducibility just by Jupyter Notebooks. Oh, yeah, I have these parameters here and there. Wait, let me go open this uh, Jupyter Notebook and see what parameters I used last week. That's insane. Don't do that. Another thing is 
keep your engineering pipeline as simple as possible. And I want to stress on this. As simple as possible means that 90% of the time, if not more, a compute engine and a database, that's it. I mean, honestly, these are the two components that cover most of the use cases out there. There's not much more than that. Now you can think about, oh, but I have three databases. Yeah, I mean, okay, fine. But it's like you need a compute engine and a set of databases. That's it, right? Be aware of these people who want to experiment stuff with stuff. Like they want to have these uh, data streaming pipelines, exotic databases. I've seen, I've dealt with people who wanted to use a graph database when really a MySQL <laughs> database was enough. I mean, seriously, man, it's nice to experiment, just not here, you know, go home, lock yourself in a room in the weekend, and that's fine. I mean, experiment with all the shit that you want. But when you are in production, dude, keep it simple. Simple is nice. Simple is actually great. Okay, I've seen people dealing with, for example, ensemble models, um, and they have been putting, you know, each a uh, uh, single model behind an API and then calling, you know, from each model, they have been calling the other model and then calling the other model and the other model, even in parallel, they were building a nonsense infrastructure, infrastructure and set of APIs for these models to call each other. And at the end, they were aggregating things. It's called ensemble, just keeping under the same component, right? Because it is the same component for God's sake. It's like, if you have an you know, ensemble, it's not just random forest, right? That's a bunch of decision trees and it's called ensemble for a reason. That's fine. But what I'm, what I'm considering is you can have heterogeneous ensembles. For example, you have a, a linear regression, a neural network, a, a random forest and another custom decision tree somewhere else, right? They all need the same data, they all access the same data and they all perform a prediction of something. And then what you do is aggregating these predictions and define your final prediction and then take a decision upon that. This is the ensemble. You don't need a, you know, these are five models. You don't need five APIs to connect to the same data and do the perform and perform the prediction independently and then aggregate them. I mean, that's exotic. It's nice because it's fun to build, but it's bullshit. So <laughs> keep the ensemble under the same component because it is the same component for God's sake. All right, cool. Uh, the very last thing is, actually, it's not the very last, is uh, we're getting to the, to, to, the, <laughs> to the end, which is uh, interacting with stakeholders. So uh, here I am, uh, you know, taking a step away from, uh, you know, from the technical part of, of the team or the technical members and move towards the stakeholders, right? The business, right? Now, when it comes to interacting with the business, I cannot stress it more let the data speak, right? Even if you are a person with a very an extremely high reputation, like you're a, a rocket scientist, that's fine, good for you, but your subjective opinion will always be debatable because that's what the business is supposed to do, right? Don't take it bad because the business has to do that. You know, that, that's their job. Uh, debating with you about some opinions that that they might they might find subjective. Now you might be a rock star, and that's good. So chances that your opinion is correct are very high. Great, I'm happy with that. But the problem is that the business will argue with you. If you let the data speak, 
Someone who's speaking, who's arguing with evidence, is an idiot usually. And so, you know, you, you don't argue with evidence. If the business is telling you, we can accept your project only if it's um, your model is performing 99.6% uh, accuracy, um, well, you can tell, and, and the data is perfectly balanced. Now you go to the data and you say, look, man, the data that we are dealing with are extremely unbalanced um, and they are very biased and uh, forget about the 99.6. Uh, this is not something we can, we can achieve because not because I am not good enough in building that model, but because the data is what it is, right? Now, if you let the data speak, you, go, you do not argue with evidence. That's my point. And so let the data speak as much as you can. Moving to the team. Now, keep your team as simple as possible, like the infrastructure, like the, the workflows, like the pipelines, like everything else. Simplify your team. And by simplifying your team, I mean, take the people that are, of course, good for the job, but also can kind of go end to end with, uh, with your workflow. If you take a data scientist who can only write um, a PyTorch model or a Keras model in Jupyter Notebook, and they don't know anything else about engineering and about machine learning or, well, machine learning workflows, I would say stay away from that. You don't want these people, right? Um, you want people who can do a bit more than what they are supposed to do, right? Um, because that data scientist who can write Jupyter Notebooks, I mean, fine with that, but you will need at least another two engineers uh, coupled with this guy for daily tasks that he cannot manage. For example, finding up a database or, or migrating stuff or connecting APIs or building endpoints and stuff like that. So, you know, you need these people, you need the data scientist who's, who's capable of doing these things. Um, now, of course, scientists who know statistics can speak to the business, can manage the infrastructure they, they use on a daily basis. You know, these are rock stars. These are called unicorns for a reason. If you can afford these people, of course, go for it. But most of the times people cannot afford these people. Uh, find someone in between. Do not go for the data scientist who can just write Jupyter notebooks. It, it's not going to help you. So... Um, no matter who you work with, right? When you are in heterogeneous teams, the one thing that you definitely want to do, and I've seen this being extremely successful, is putting people in the same room. Now, engineers, data scientists, project managers, and other stakeholders, if they can be in the same room, they better do. Now, usually the business cannot be in the same room because, you know, they, they are not actively involved in the day-to-day -day tasks when it comes to model design, machine learning pipeline design and implementation. They don't need to be there, of course, but keep the other folks in the same room. And of course, now under pandemics, keep them in the same channel when they are working remote. No difference there. Keep these people always involved together on a daily basis. There is a reason why Google never sent people at home, you know, that even before COVID, they never, they never allowed people to work from home uh, because they want people to be in the same room. Uh, and not everyone, but certain people. The people who are actively building something from different backgrounds, with different skills, from different perspective, 
They have to be in the same place. No discussions there. I think that's it for today. I, I just want to uh, renew the invitation. I've started this uh, personal channel on Twitch. I'm having so much fun, actually. Uh, you can see me live coding and sometimes speaking, uh, sometimes even playing arcade arcade games and that's so much fun guys I mean really you can uh, I will report the the link in the show notes of this episode I'm also telling you here is twitch.tv slash coding gossip with one g no spaces coding gossip let me let me see if I can spell it again c-o-d-i-n-g-o-s-s-i-p wow that was long well twitch.tv slash coding gossip and uh, I would be, be very glad to see you there and uh, interact with you while while I'm live coding. Uh, lately, I'm doing a lot of um, machine learning with Rust, the Rust programming language, which is an amazing language. Uh, so if you are interested, just uh, come there and uh, uh, check the schedule. And uh, I'm usually online uh, two or three times per week, something like that. Um, uh, we are also on Discord. If you like to drop comments or have a chat, uh, it's always nice to discuss previous episodes or uh, propose new ones. Um, uh, the link to the Discord channel, I definitely do not remember, so I will have to uh, post it in the show notes of this episode and, of course, on the regular official website, datascienceathome.com. I guess that's all for today. Thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.